Good morning, everybody. Everybody awake now? <laughs> Good. All right, let's, uh, let's pray and get started. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, thank you for the, this wonderful day you've given us, your, your day, the Lord's day, to come together and worship, study together, fellowship together, exalt you, and uh, just help us now as we, as we look to your word, as we uh, continue our study in, in the church, uh, of your church. And uh, again, guide us, and thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so we'll, yeah, I can, I can really tell that I'm on. <laughs> we, are, we are continuing our study in uh, the church, and we're following uh, John MacArthur's book, The Master's Plan for the Church. And what I want to do first is, uh, is just review back what we've done. And so we can go ahead and click on the first slide there, Michael. And this is what this is what we've done, and what and we're going to uh, click on that last one, uh, the the fourth one today. But we've been looking at the anatomy of the church, and we started out with the skeletal system and the internal systems. Last week it was the muscles, and today we're going to look at the head of the church, which is, which is of course Christ. So we're going to finish up anatomy uh, today, and then we'll move on to the uh, to the next sections. Uh, in MacArthur's book after that, in our study of ecclesiology, the church. So first, just a little bit of review of, of those systems. First, the skeletal structure of the church. Uh, these are the non-negotiable truths, uh, rigid uh, and unbending framework. I feel like I'm almost too loud. Am I blasting everybody out? No. I'm, I'm good? Okay. <laughs> I don't want to hurt anybody. <laughs> with their ears. Um, but the skeletal structure, those are those non-negotiable truths. Uh, think about our own skeletal system. You know, you've got to have a spine, you have to have those bones, whatever those bones are called in your arms the, and legs. And, and without those bones holding us up, we're just, you know, we're just going to be a puddle of nothing. And so we, we have five um, non-negotiable truths. First, a, a high view of God meaning that we seek to know who God really is, who is God really, and to glorify him, a very high view of our Lord. We also have the authority, the absolute authority of Scripture. Scripture is the single authority for our knowledge of who God is, for our knowledge of God. We must know what the Scripture teaches about God, and we have that single authority source. Another non-negotiable is sound doctrine. We must follow what his word teaches us. Doctrine is to be taught in the church and to be learned in the church and to be followed. Doctrine is to be taught and learned and followed. It must be sound doctrine. Personal holiness. We cannot be in a real, true, proper communication with the Lord by harboring sin in our lives. Now, are we going to sin? Yes. But to harbor sin, to let sin come in, think about a harbor where a ship comes in and has safe haven. We don't want to do that in terms of sin in our lives, to let the sin come in and just keep it in a nice safe place and, and keep that there and harbor it. No, you want to, to blow that out of the harbor and not have sin in your life. We need to be in a continual state of confession and cleansing when it comes to sin. 
because we know it's going to be there. And so we have to be continually on the lookout. We have to continually be examining ourselves for sin. And then finally, spiritual authority. Christ is the head of the church, but he also, but he rules through godly elders and pastors. That's uh, the spiritual authority that we're talking about here is the Lord himself, and he works through his leaders within the church. We'll talk about that a little bit more later when we get into the details of Christ, the head of the church. So that was the, that was the skeletal structure. Then we moved on to the internal systems. You can think of the internal systems of our own body, things like the circulatory system and the respiratory system and the digestive system and the nervous system and the reproductive system. And, and uh, I know some of you who are in the, the medical field, you could, you could name off a bazillion other systems that I, that I, didn't, uh, that I couldn't <laughs> think of. I thought of those five or six, and I know that there are others. But in terms of the church, we also have internal systems that give the body life and vitality. Just like those physical systems give us life to be able to breathe and the blood circulating through us, where we have life, the spiritual attitudes that we have within the church give this church, our body, life and vitality. These spiritual attitudes, it's the goal of the pastors and the elders and the leaders to generate the proper spiritual attitudes within the hearts of the people of the church. And as, as you see there, there's a long list of those, uh, of those spiritual attitudes. And um, um, you see them, so I'm not going to read them. <laughs> but these are the attitudes that hopefully uh, will prompt uh, godly behavior in us, not because of wanting to put on an external show, but that we have a godly heart attitude and these natural these things just naturally spring the fruits of the spirit basically these na- these things naturally spring from our hearts because we have the proper attitude and it's not just an external act trying to please people but this is this is the real us uh, with the lord living inside of us and then finally um, last week Darren talked uh, taught about the muscles uh, the muscles allow the body to actually function in terms of movement and action to be able to operate. The body is put into motion by the muscles. And at Grace, uh, as I was looking at this and looking at these uh, bullet points of preaching and teaching and, and so on, evangelism and all of these, out in the hallway, right, I'm, I'm looking at part of it uh, out there right now. I'm looking at the ING on, on uh, equipping, I think. Or is it evangelizing? I'm looking at ING of something right through that window. And there are three E's out there uh, to equip, to evangelize, and to exalt. At the leadership level, whenever we look at a particular ministry, or if, if there's a particular ministry that we wonder, should we do that? Or if there's an expense that comes up, should we, should we spend money on something in particular? Is there something that we should or shouldn't do? We run it through that grid. Whatever it is the that comes to us at a leadership level, is this something that will equip the saints? Is this something that will evangelize? Is this something that will exalt the Lord? Will it fit into one of those three categories? And if you look at everything on that list, preaching and teaching, is that equipping, evangelizing, or exaltation? Is that one of those? Yep. I would say that that's the, you know, preaching and teaching, equipping. Evangelism and missions. Well, (laughs) 
evangelism. Worship, is that one of those? Is prayer one of the, all of the everything on that list you could fit into one of those three categories of equipping or evangelizing or exaltation. And so those those are the muscles. That allows the church to actually to actually function, to operate, to do ministry. And now we come to the last of the our anatomy of the church, and that is and that is the head of the church, uh, which is Christ. And I want to share a couple of jumping off points uh, before we get into the detail. And first, uh, some scripture from Ephesians chapter 4, verses 15 and 16. We read this. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him. And when, when I, as I was reading this, grow up, I immediately thought, yeah, all those other things that we studied, the skeletal system and the, and the, uh, the internal systems and the muscles... Uh, if we're going to function properly, or if our body itself is going to function properly, all those things are going to grow. Our skeleton's going to grow. Our systems are going to grow. Our, our, inter- our, our um, muscles are going to grow. And so those other uh, parts of the anatomy, we, we see this reference here, that we are to grow up in every way into him, and that's the study now, into him, the Christ, the head of the church, who is the head into Christ from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. So we see Christ is the head of the church. And then our major focus today, as we study Christ, the head of the church, will be Hebrews 13, 20 through 21. This is a, a, the... Uh, final benediction right at the end of Hebrews as the writer of Hebrews uh, ends, uh, ends this letter. And so we're going to use that as our focus of study. And here in Hebrews 13, 20, 21, we, we read this. So if, if, if you wanted to keep your thumb somewhere in, in your Bible, this would probably be as good a place as any to keep your thumb. <laughs> and we read this. Now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you in every good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. So we're going to kind of pick our way through a few things in this verse as we study Christ, the head of the church. And the first is to look at the overall tenor of this whole benediction and really the, the, one, of the, one of the major themes of Hebrews in the first place, and that is Christ is our Savior. And so that's the first thing that we want to look at as we study the, uh, Christ, the head of the church. We're going to look at four things altogether, four characteristics of Christ, the head of the church. The first is that he is our Savior. The second, that he's our great shepherd. And then that he's the sovereign. And finally, that he is the sanctifier. So those are the four areas that we'll look at here with the rest of the time that that we have together as we finish up the church anatomy. So first, let's look at uh, the Savior. This entire benediction, again, all of Hebrews, is pointing to Christ is our Savior, uh, the saving work of Christ for his church. And we want to look at three things with respect to Christ being our Savior. And the first thing is his name. Jesus' name speaks of his saving work. In Matthew one twenty one, we read this. 
It, it reads, you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. The word uh, Jesus, the name Jesus means Jehovah saves. Jesus is the name of the only one who truly saves sinners, who saves us from our sin. And so his own name speaks of his work, of his saving work for our, of our sin. Uh, we also have Acts 4.12. It says, There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. It's the name of Jesus Christ alone that we, that we have our salvation. And so he's our, we have, uh, we're re- reminded of his work as our Savior just through his name to begin with. And then his blood. Hebrews 9.22, we read, All things are cleansed by blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. Matthew 26, 28, we read, This is the blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for forgiveness of sins. The Jews uh, knew the importance of blood in terms of sacrifice. They still know this. We don't see the sacrifices being made uh, by the Jews uh, like we used to because there's no temple to sacrifice at. Uh, those of us that went to Israel in June, we we walked around where the temple used to be, and now there's just a big slab and a big mosque there where the temple used to be. And someday the temple will be there again, but right there, right now it's it's not there. The place where uh, the Lord said, "This is where you'll sacrifice," it isn't there. Um, and so we don't see the blood sacrifices being made by the Jews. Um, uh, as we'd seen in the past, but they are anxious to get started. <laughs> they are training men how to do that, <laughs> even today, and all the, uh, all the necessary equipment uh, to, to have those sacrifices in place again. Not that that's going to save them, because <laughs> it's the blood of Christ that saves, not the blood of those animals. This last Wednesday was an important Jewish holiday. Anybody see that on the calendar? Yom Kippur was last Wednesday. And I know that the, the, the students who have been to Ibex, who are the Ibex kids in here who have been to Ibex? I know there's, is there anybody? Where's my daughter? Oh, did, okay, right. Yes? <laughs> so we have, we have, we have a, a, a couple of Ibexers in here. Heather, was, Heather went to Ibex. I don't know where my daughter Karen is. Where's Karen? She's, she's up there. Okay. <laughs> Okay, Heather's been to Ibex. Were you there in the fall or the spring? So you were there for Yom Kippur. What was it like? Yeah, the highway that's just down the road, the major highway down the road from the Moshav, which is normally one of the big, busiest traveled uh, highways between Jerusalem and Tel Aviv. You go out there and it was like empty. <laughs> Think about I-5 being totally empty. And that's, that's the way it is on the Day of Atonement. You do nothing. You stay home. And Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, this is the day when you, you atone through sacrifice for all the sins of the previous year. That's what Yom Kippur is, the, the basic to give it to you in a real quick 
summary, very quick summary, that this is the day that you atone for all the sins past of the previous year. Very important date uh, to atone for all of those sins that you've been saving up, so to speak, and, uh, and get those taken care of uh, through sacrifice. I read that there are still some Jews that do practice some sacrifice. I read something that sounded kind of comical that you take a chicken and you wave the chicken. I guess you're waving it by the neck or something. You wave the chicken three times over your head and then, and then sacrifice it. And um, uh, so there are still some animal sacrifices being practiced by the, by the Jews. But, but the Jews, the, my point is, I got off track a little bit there, but my point is they, the Jews know, they knew and they still know, the importance of blood sacrifice, and, and the scriptures uh, drive that home to us too, the importance of there must be shedding of blood in order to have forgiveness of sins. There's got to be a sacrifice to atone for our sins. Hebrews nine eighteen through 21, we read this. Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated Not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, this is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. And in the the same way, he sprinkled with blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Can you, can you get a picture of that in your mind, of, of Moses? You know, he's got this wool, you know, the hyssop branch, and there's wool on the end of it. He's dipped it in, in animal blood, and he's coming over to Gen- And you've got, you've got, you're sprinkled with blood. It's blood everywhere. Blood is everywhere. In this, and so that was an important symbol of atonement, and but it was just a symbol, <laughs> and of course we know that it's a symbol of the blood of Christ, the eternal covenant. Hebrews thirteen twenty, we read that uh, Jesus' blood is the blood of the eternal covenant. The old covenant was temporary, so all of that blood that was being sprinkled everywhere uh, that we just read in Hebrews nine. That was temporary, but Jesus' blood brought eternal salvation. In Hebrews 9, verses 12, and then later on in, in, uh, in chapter 10, we read this, that, that he, Jesus, entered once and for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption, not a temporary redemption, when the priests would sacrifice those uh, goats and bulls and and uh, the calves and birds and whatever else they sacrificed and it was just it was a one it was a just a temporary fix for their sin like Yom Kippur the day of atonement okay let's take care of all my sins for the previous year and the next year we'll do it all again and the next day of atonement the next Yom Kippur in chapter 10 Every priest stands daily at his service offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. And so the importance of blood in terms of Christ our Savior, 
uh, in terms of his work, part of his work as, as head of the church, is a big deal. And we see that throughout Scripture, especially in Hebrews. Hebrews is, is, uh, is a bloody book <laughs> in that sense, reminding us of the importance of the blood. And then another characteristic of, of uh, his saving work for us is his resurrection. And of course, in our own lives, we immediately think, yes, and we want to be resurrected too. And because of his resurrection, we will be resurrected. We will be given eternal life. But even, uh, you know, that's a big deal to us because we, we, uh, our hope is because of his resurrection, we will also be resurrected. We, we will have eternal life. But you want to go back a step beyond that, and that is why was Christ resurrected in the first place? Why was there a resurrection? And that's because the Father approved of the sacrifice. It was an acceptable sacrifice to the Lord. That blood sacrifice was approved by the Lord Jesus, by, by the Father as an acceptable sacrifice for sin. And so that's a big deal. <laughs> it's a big deal that, uh, that, the, that the Father raised the Son because that was his acknowledgement that this sacrifice is acceptable for the sins of all men, of those who, who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ as their, as their Savior. So our own resurrection is made possible only because of that acceptable sacrifice that was proved acceptable through the resurrection. So that's a big deal. And so we have Christ our Savior. The, next, uh, the second area we want to look at is, is uh, Christ uh, the Great Shepherd, he is our great shepherd. In Psalms seventy-seven twenty, we read, the psalmist uh, wrote, You led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. Uh, you led, the Lord led the flock. And you used Moses and Aaron in that leadership. The Lord was the true shepherd, the great shepherd, just as he is now. And Moses and Aaron were his underlings, his helpers, his workers, just as today pastors and elders and leaders of the church, um, those are the underlings that the Lord uses today. Christ, though, Jesus is the great shepherd who cares for us and nurtures us. In the book, if, if those of you who have, have MacArthur's book on the master's plan for the church, you may have read the section about uh, when he talks about how difficult it is to shepherd people at Grace Community Church. Grace Church is a huge place. It's, I think they have, you know, on any given Sunday, they probably have about 6,000 people attending there. And they have uh, around 35 elders. And if you do the math, 6,000 divided by 35, that's a lot of people per elder. And it's very difficult for uh, leadership to keep tabs on everybody. We were talking about this in our, in our elder meeting uh, this last Wednesday. And, um, and Steve, Steve said, you know, they've... Uh, I've, I've had conversations with the men about that, and they, they, they understand that, to a certain extent, it's nearly impossible to try to keep up with, with the shepherding. And that's something that we talk about at a leadership level here, is how can we, how can we shepherd our flock here at Grace, at Grace Bible Church? There are a lot of needs uh, that we're, we're not always aware of at the leadership level. Is somebody having difficulty with another member? You know, how, do we, how can we know that? How do we find those things out? Is a member struggling with sin? 
is a member finding it difficult to become involved in, in the church. It's easy for members to fly under the radar of the pastors and the elders and, and to just kind of hide. Some people like to hide. <laughs> they like to slip in, slip out, and, and, and not be seen. But, um, but is that giving glory to the Lord? And, uh, and on a membership level, we want our members to be active in, in their ministry and to have a ministry in the church. But we know in spite of our best efforts on a leadership level, it's, it, can be, it can be tough, especially somebody who doesn't want to be shepherd. Think about a, a, uh, an actual flock of sheep, and there's some little wild sheep that decides to go out on their own, and I don't want to be. Uh, most sheep aren't like that. They want to be with everybody else, but one of them decides to go astray and go somewhere else. You know, the shepherd's got to take his crook and <laughs> yank him back over, get over here. Need to be shepherded. They need to be brought back in. And uh, that, can be, that can be difficult. And in that case, uh, in spite of our best efforts, that's when it's important for all of us, and especially in a leadership level, to remember who is the great shepherd after all. Uh, we, we, we make our best efforts as shepherds of the church on a leadership level, but the great shepherd is the Lord Jesus Christ. And in all of our lives, he is the ultimate shepherd. He's the one that we ultimately... Uh, go to he's he's our ultimate nurturer and, uh, and and caregiver for us is the lord jesus christ in the meantime he does use leaders uh, uh, to help the caring and, and helping the nurturing he's our great shepherd he uh, he cares and nurtures for us he also equips us one of our e's out there equipping hebrews thirteen twenty one. Um, back to our uh, our central uh, scripture in Hebrews, the great shepherd will equip you in every good thing to do his will. And part of that, uh, that benediction in Hebrews, he equips us through his word. If you go to Second Timothy, I won't go to these scriptures, but uh, I think we, we, we know what these are. Second Timothy 3, 16 and 17, he equips us through his word. He equips through gifted men, gifted teachers and pastors. Ephesians 4, 11 and 12 tells us that. We're, we're equipped through trials. Through trials, we, we gain endurance, which equip us to handle all, the, all the, uh, the awful things that life throws at us. And, uh, and we're able to be better equipped through, those, through enduring trials, as we read in 1 Peter 5.10 and John 15.2 and 3. And so he equips us as, uh, as our great shepherd. And finally... A shepherd protects the sheep by fighting off um, wolves and keeping the sheep from places they shouldn't be, be in. And Jesus also, our Lord Jesus Christ, also protects us from our great adversary, our wolf, Satan, who is constantly, uh, just as Satan accused Job before God, Satan does that to, with us before the Lord, before the Lord every day, every minute, <laughs> accusing us of our sin. Look at the sin that that guy committed. Look at the sin. I'll, I'll name names. Look at the sin that John Townsley committed. Look at the sin that 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 Bart Bissell committed. Look at the sin that Mark Harriger cons- uh, committed. Look at that sin. We're being accused 
all the time. And yet, who is there? The Lord. The Lord Jesus Christ is there interceding for us, defending us before God. We're accused before God, but Jesus stands at the right hand of his Father and says, My blood paid for that sin. That sin is covered. That sin is no that that sin is not there. Satan's saying, Look at this sin, and Jesus is saying, My blood has erased that sin, and the Father is saying, What sin? <laughs> I see nothing, Satan. There's nothing there. There is no sin. God is not going to reject the defense that the Son gives, that my, bl- my blood covered that, wiped that away. We know that the Father has accepted. We talked about the resurrection just a few minutes ago. We know that, uh, that the Father has accepted the Lord's sacrifice for our sin. It was an acceptable sacrifice. That's why he was raised from the dead. And that's why we'll be raised from the dead. God is not going to hold a charge against us. We're justified before the, uh, God the Father. And of course, Jesus can sympathize with us when, we are, uh, when we're tempted by sin. Of course, the Lord Jesus Christ did not sin, but he was tempted. And he knows exactly what we go through. And I had to kind of think about that when I, he knows exactly what we go through. Does he know exactly what I'm going through? I mean, he doesn't know what I'm going through, does he? I mean, did he go through that? He might know what I'm going through, but he didn't go through that, did he? You know, can he, can he truly sympathize? But we read in Hebrews 4.15 that he was tempted in all things, in every aspect. However you're tempted, Hebrews 4.15 says, he was tempted in every aspect that you're tempted. He was tempted in anything you can name, the Lord faced that. Whatever, whatever trial you have, whatever problem you're going through, the Lord was going through exactly the same temptation. Did he give in to that temptation? No, he didn't. He was perfect. He had a sinless life, a perfect sinless life. But did he understand the agony that you go through? He, knew ex- he knows exactly the agony that you go through in your, in your own sin and the problems that you have. He can sympathize with you down to the, whatever little detail you want to pray to him about and share with, with brothers and sisters in Christ, the Lord was tempted in all things, every aspect. He was hungry, he was thirsty, he was fatigued, and some of us would read that and say, you know, if that's all I had to worry about was being hungry, thirsty, and fatigued, I'll take that, <laughs> because it gets worse, right? Well, the Lord faced worse also. Just like us, he was raised by a human family. He, he loved, he disliked things, he marveled at things, he was glad, he was sad, he was angry, he was sarcastic, he grieved, just like we do. He's been through all that we go through. He's our sympathetic defender. He defends us and he has sympathy for us. He knows. He's our faithful high priest who is constantly, at every moment, interceding for us, defending us. He's our advocate before God the Father. And so we have that aspect of the head of the church, that he is our great shepherd. Third, he's the sovereign of the church. In, uh, back in Hebrews 13, uh, verse 20, we read at one point that, uh, that we, it says, Now may the God of peace, verse 20 in chapter 13, Now may the God of peace who 
brought again from the dead, our Lord Jesus. Our Lord. Our Lord is the one who has complete authority. That's the meaning of the word Lord. One, someone who has total authority. He is sovereign over all. In Ephesians 1, chapter 1, verses 22 and 3, we read that he put, and he put all things under his feet, and he gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. He's sovereign over all. And then um, this is a verse that we studied just recently as we were going through Colossians. And uh, and our brother Ben um, wrote, a, wrote a beautiful song. And whenever I read this verse, I start singing. Thank you. <laughs> Colossians 1, 18 through 19. And he is the head of the church. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. The Lord's sovereignty is manifested in two ways that we'll now look at. First, he rules the church, and he teaches the church. Matthew eighteen twenty gives us insight into how he rules his church. In 18.20, we read that, For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. Where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. Now, I think that we've, we've often used that passage as a passage of comfort, that when we're together with another, um, uh, another person, we, we think, Oh, you know, it's, we're, we're together here. The Lord is with us. And so then, of course, you have to think, Well, if I'm just by myself, did, did he leave? <laughs> I hope he's still there, whether I have a brother or sister with me or not. And so we, um, uh, so that's not really the point of that verse. The point of that verse is not to give you comfort that when you're with another brother or sister that the Lord is with, with the two or three of you. Uh, the point there is that uh, there's church discipline going on. This is in Matthew 18. And uh, the, the point is that we have a, uh, a confrontation of sin, that you have two or three witnesses confirming the sin of someone within this discipline uh, process. So we want to look at the context here, that this isn't a context of just giving comfort that the Lord is with you, but the context is that we have, um, that we have Jesus Christ, the Lord, ruling his church through the witness of godly witnesses, through godly men. That's really the context of here when you look at the, the discipline uh, side of this, the context. If you go back a couple of verses from verse 20, pick it up in 18 and 19 in Matthew 18. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two or if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. The point is that the Lord is giving his approval, affirming his approval, when sin, when sin is confronted in the church by the godly action of witnesses, witnesses that come together and in, in, in a godly manner confront a sinful church member. The church is acting on behalf of Christ 
at this point. Remember that one of the, one of the important skeletal features was spiritual authority. And the Lord has given spiritual authority to pastors and elders. And as spiritual authority, those leaders, they are to confront sin. It's not, it's not pleasant, and, but it has to be done. The church, the, Christ wants his church to be pure. Christ rules his church through a plurality of elders and godly men who seek the Lord's will for the church and carry out the Lord's will. These two or three witnesses, this is all about, this is all about spiritual authority. The spiritual authority given to godly leaders to carry out the rule of the Lord. That's what this is all about. So the, so the Lord rules the church, and he rules the church through godly men. Also, he's our teacher. He is sovereign in teaching. The word of God and human teachers reveal the Lord's will, but the Lord himself is the ultimate teacher. In John fifteen twenty six, we read, But when the Helper comes whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. He'll teach you about me. The Spirit will teach us. He teaches us through his word and his spirit. Uh, the Lord uses human teachers, but I, <laughs> I more than anyone know the frailty, frailty of, of human teaching, of getting words mixed up and saying the wrong thing <laughs> at the wrong time. And, uh, and, and even though I don't think I'm dyslexic, uh, I know that there's sometimes that I say things that sound like, that guy's dyslexic, because <laughs> he said that backwards. My students tell me that all the time. Did you say that right? <laughs> oh, sorry. <laughs> but we rely on the Holy Spirit to teach us all truth, who never gets it backwards, and it's always correct. And uh, the truth of, uh, it's the duty of teachers, of course, to get it right as much as we can, but the Holy Spirit ultimately gets it right as he teaches us. It's the duty of teachers to teach the truth of Scripture and not to provide commentary on social issues, for example, and uh, which was very frustrating. Well, I don't know if I should be frustrated, but this week, of course, the Pope, this last week, the Pope was in the United States. And uh, those of us who are believers, I think that if you're like me, you just kind of go, eh, you know, okay, well, um, that's nice. But, and, of course, the, the big, some of my students came in uh, on the day that he addressed Congress, and, oh, boy, you know, are we going to watch the Pope? And I said, no, we've got calculus to do. But, uh, <laughs> but, but what, did he, what was one of the big issues that he talked about? Climate change. Climate change. <laughs> Climate change. Okay. <laughs> Uh, as as teachers of the Lord, and of course, I don't, see, you know, I, I wouldn't put the Pope in, in, in there, but if you're going to teach the truth of Scripture, and the, the Pope's not doing that, um, got to be, a, first of all, you have to you have to know the Lord. And he's uh, he is not uh, obviously doing that, but he's, you know, com- doing commentary on social issues. He's given other commentaries, he's doing, giving absolutely nothing from the Word of God, though. Nothing that is going to save a person. I, I challenged my, my students after they, they asked me, are we going to hear the Pope? And I said, no. Uh, I don't want to hear about climate change. Now, if he wants to talk about how a person can be saved from their sin, I might turn that on. And, and then I challenged them with, 
Look at the reception that the Pope is getting here in the United States. Absolutely huge. Everybody's just going nuts about the Pope being here, and they're overjoyed. Now, think about, go back a couple thousand years, and think about some, someone who came to earth that was far greater than any than, than a pope could, could ever be. The Lord Jesus Christ. What reception did he get? How was he treated? What was the ultimate, what ultimately happened to the Lord Jesus Christ by his own people? Murdered, killed, despised. What kind of reception was that? And, but why did he come? He came to save from sin. That's a good message. That's the good news. That's the message we want to hear. That's something that we should cheer for. And, but what kind of reception did he get? He was killed. Well, I, I challenged the kids. What if the Pope came through and said, Hey, you're a sinner. You need, you need to accept the Lord Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Forget all the trappings of the Catholic Church and all the things, do this, do this, do this, do this, and pray to Mary and, and hold your rosary beads and do all these other works. It's not about that. It's about the saving work of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what it's about. If that was the message of the Pope, what kind of reception would he get? <laughs> he wouldn't be the Pope. <laughs> if the Catholic Church still exists the way it does, he would not be the Pope. There would be somebody else there. He wouldn't be the Pope. It would be someone else. And that's tough. That's really hard. This is harsh uh, for, for people to listen to. Uh, you know, if, if, you're not, if you're not a believer, if, if, uh, if, you're, if the Lord Jesus Christ is not your Lord and Savior, you're thinking, boy, that's harsh. It is harsh. And that's why people hated Christ. That's why they hated him. But we have a teacher to teach us. And um, again, I got a little off track there, but I want to share my, <laughs> my little story. In, uh, in 1 John 2.20, we read this, But you have been anointed by the Holy One, and, you, and all of you have knowledge. But the anointing that you receive from Him abides in you, and you have no need that anyone should teach you. But as His anointing teaches you about everything, and is true, and is no lie, just as He has taught you, abide in Him. His Holy Spirit teaches us and so he he is he is our sovereign he is the sovereign he he rules and he teaches and finally he's our sanctifier he is our great sanctifier he is working going back to hebrews thirteen twenty one. he is working in us that which is pleasing in his sight that which is pleasing in his sight he's working within us um when we read that he, the Lord works that which is pleasing, I thought, well, okay, that's the opposite of that which is not pleasing. And what's not pleasing to him? And that's sin. Sin is not pleasing. The Lord is working to sanctify us, to set us apart um, from those things that aren't pleasing to him. He sets us apart from sin. He purifies us. He leads us for his glory. And so we... We want to think about our Lord in that sense also, that he sets us apart. Just as he set apart the nation of Israel um, for his purposes, he sets us apart for his purposes, for his 
glory. He desires that we confront sin in our own lives. He desires that we confront sin in the lives of brothers in the church because this is how he purifies the church. Again, go back to spiritual authority. Part of the responsibility of pastors and elders is to confront sin that they see in the church. But even individual members, when you yourself see another member sinning, it's your responsibility to confront that sin, to go to that brother and say, look, look what, did, you, did, did I get this right that you did this or said this and you spot this sin? It's your responsibility to go to that brother so that the church can be pure, so that individual lives can be true and be pure. Christ purifies us, and he purifies his church. And of course, people don't always respond favorably, even within this own church. Uh, a, a year or so ago, we had a church discipline issue where there was not a favorable response, and so that person had to be removed from the church and taken off of our roles. That's harsh, but it's necessary to keep the church pure. Are we praying for restoration for that person still? Yes, It'd be a wonderful thing to see that person restored to our fellowship and to come back and, and, and understand his sin and admit his sin and confess and repent. But the immediate need in a situation like that is to keep the church pure from sin. And when a person won't confess and won't repent after repeated um, counseling with that person and even with the, the entire church, it's necessary to remove that person. And, of course, we see that in Scripture, in 1 Corinthians 11, uh, when we had people that were uh, taking the Lord's table in an unworthy manner. Some of them were sleeping. In other words, they were taken home, and they were sick. Ephesians, in Ephesians 5, 25 through 27, we read this about purification in the context of husbands and wives. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, set her apart, cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. The Lord is continually purifying his church. And of course, going back to our, uh, our own anatomy, our personal holiness and our own confession of sin is, is, is part of that. And so uh, these are uh, the, this last category that he's our great sanctifier. And uh, just to finish off, I, as, as I was reading the last part of MacArthur's book and kind of posing the questions, why? You know, why do this? Why do we seek purity? Why do we seek all these things? Why should we set ourselves apart? And um, we're his sheep, if we're, if we're Christians, we're a sheep. In John 10, 27, we follow the Lord. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. A characteristic of a believer is you follow the Lord. You follow what he, de- what he says to do. And um, what, a, what, a great, what a great person to follow. The Lord Jesus Christ, who is without sin, is perfect, will be, is glorified in heaven now, and, and will raise his children to glory what a great uh, hope that we have to think about heaven with the lord jesus christ and to as i was i i 
I was an athlete in football. In, in high school, I played football. And so I, I thought about that, that I, I wasn't anybody special on the team, but I was on a winning team. And that was fun. It was fun to be on a team that went to the playoffs. It was fun to be on a team that won the championship. It was, it was fun to be there, even though I was just one of the also-rans on the team. It didn't, even, it didn't matter if I sat on the bench the whole time. I was there. <laughs> as a believer in, in the Lord Jesus Christ, as one of his children, you're not, a, you're not just sitting on the bench. He wants us to work for his glory. He has a ministry for each one of us. We're part of the anatomy. Each of us has an important function uh, as, in ministry. And we're part of a winning team. How great is that? <laughs> How great is that? That's a wonderful thing to serve the Lord in this way. Okay, let's pray. Father, we, we do thank you for your headship over us, that, uh, that you rule, that you teach, you're our Savior, you equip us, you're sovereign in, in all things. And we know that uh, confronting sin can sometimes be harsh. Uh, if we want to be popular, we don't do that. If we want to have a really cheery reception, we don't confront sin. But that's not what being a follower of the Lord is all about. You confronted sin and you were crucified. When we confront sin, we may not have a great, that might not have a great reception either, but ultimately it's going to give glory to you. And that person that repents and, and turns from their sin and admits their sin, that's glorious. Uh, and we, we thank you for the conviction that you do give us in our own sin. And we pray that uh, for that continually, continual purification in our own lives, the purification of your church. And we know that we have the hope of glory of being with you eternally in heaven because of you covering our sin, wiping our sin debt away because of your blood. That is the message of the gospel that the Father approved of that sacrifice, and we thank you for that. Thank you for our time together here. In Jesus' name, amen.